Welcome to the teachings of Pastor Mike Yost of the Springs Calvary Chapel in Habern, Idaho. Please join us as we study the Word of God. The Gospel of Luke. Exciting stuff. As you probably know, there are four gospel accounts in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Gospel uh, literally is just a term uh, for euangelizo is the Greek word, where we get evangelism or evangelistic, and then that word euangelizo, as it changes from Greek to all the different languages, actually got morphed into what we use the word G-O-S-P-E-L, gospel. We'll see it used uh, over in verse 19 when the angel Gabriel says, I'm bringing to you the euangelizo, the gospel, the good news, the glad tidings. And so this is one of the good newses, the glad tidings, the, the story of Jesus. And so there's, there's four of them. Of course, Matthew, we just finished the book of Matthew on our midweek study on Wednesday. And Matthew wrote primarily to an audience of, of Jews, Jewish people. And so they would understand, and they were looking for their king, for their Messiah. In fact, Matthew quotes the Old Testament over 99 times. If you, hard to get a running count and all the illusions and fulfillments. That's three times as many as all the other Gospels combined. Matthew really connects the Old Testament coming king, the Messiah, for the Jewish audience to see. Well, Mark, he writes a power-packed, to-the-point gospel to the Roman audience. They were like, just, just give me the meat. I don't, I don't need all the stuff. I just give me the stuff. And it, was, it deals a lot with servanthood. And it's interesting, in the Roman Empire, in uh, Mark's day, in Jesus' day, 10%, about 50 or 5 million people were slaves. And, and even Jesus came that he would serve and give his life a ransom for many. In the Gospel of John, written after the Gospel of Luke, later in time, we see John really showing us who Jesus God is, deity, in the beginning, from before time was the Word, the Word was God, and was with God, the Word was God, right? And we beheld His glory, He was manifest, and we, we saw Him, and He was an expression of God in human form. And that's the Gospel of John, talks to us about the God-man. And then in Luke here, we get a gospel that's really written for a Gentile audience. Now, you guys are Gentiles. I, unless you were born Jewish, everybody else on the planet falls into the other category, non-Jewish people, okay? And so this is a, 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 a letter, a gospel, good news for people like you and me. Um, and in it, the physician, Luke, the doctor, Luke, really gives us the humanity of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so it's fun looking at what Luke is going to give us. There's so much detail in this. Luke himself, the author, is not actually mentioned in the book of Luke by name. Uh, we do see him mentioned three times in the uh, New Testament, in Colossians 4.14, 2 Timothy 4.11, and Philemon verse 24. So, but we see Luke as part of the team that was evangelizing the world. Luke is known for writing not only the Gospel of Luke, but he also wrote Acts, the books of Acts that follows the four Gospels. And when we don't know really who the author of the book of Hebrews was, you know, there's, there's nobody signed it and said, I wrote this. Some people think it was the Apostle Paul. Others think it could be somebody else. The point I want to make there is if you take the volume, you take the size of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, it is the biggest portion of the New Testament. Unless Paul wrote the book of Hebrews also, and then you could say Paul had the bigger portion. But between the two of them, out on the mission field together, they were responsible for bringing us this good news, the New Testament, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's interesting how um, Paul was with, or Luke was with Paul. We see him in the book of Acts in chapter 15. Uh, he shows up and the, the pronouns start changing as Luke is writing the, the book of Acts and he starts saying, we went here and there and we start seeing him included in the gospel and all the way through until you get into first uh, or second Timothy 
4.11. I just want to read this because it's kind of cool. Um, this is the relationship that these two guys had. In um, 4.11 of 2 Timothy, Paul writing about Luke, this is Timothy's, or Paul's last words. He's about to meet his maker, okay? And, and he writes, only Luke is with me. He said, everybody else has abandoned me. Demas has forsaken me. And all these people have just gone away from me, but only Luke was with me. He also says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he's useful to me in ministry. That would be Mark, the gospel writer of the, of the gospel of Mark. But Luke and, and Paul were a dynamic duo, and then Luke is writing down uh, the story that he learned out on the mission field as he became a missionary. Um, Three things about Luke that are kind of interesting as we go through his story and who he is as a person. He was a medical missionary. He was actually attached to the Apostle Paul as a, a doctor, and he would go with him and, and tend to all of his wounds. It seemed like every town that Paul walked into in the book of Acts, it's like, where's your jail? Why do you want to know that? Well, it's probably where I'm going to be spending the night. You see, I come here, I preach the gospel, they stone me or beat me, and they throw me in prison, right? And then there was Luke always there to tend to Paul. So he was an eyewitness to all of these things, a medical missionary. Um, and it's interesting how we go through the gospel of Luke, and there is so much that he writes about the human condition, not only as Jesus and the humanity of Jesus, but just the people that we meet in the gospel of Luke. He takes extra special attention to things like pregnancy or giving birth or deaths or resurrection, right? Healings or uh, um, exorcisms and demon possession. Luke is really interested in what we deal with. And so it's a wonderful gospel to kind of see ourselves in the pages. Also an interesting thing about Luke, tradition holds, we don't have it in the Bible, but that he was an artist, that he, he would create works of art. And it's interesting because we see even in the gospel such a great attention to detail. And Luke is the one that brings us things that are only found in his gospel. What we'll see today, the record of Zacharias and Elizabeth and the angel Gabriel's annunciation of the birth of John the Baptist. We see Mary's Magnificat recorded. Uh, we see Jesus' bar mitzvah, if you will, 12 years old at the temple. And these are stories that you don't find in the other Gospels. Uh, Luke tells us about Jesus' Galilean ministry when he's up near the Sea of Galilee, chapters 9 through 19, where we get almost all of what we know about his Galilean ministries. Um, and in Luke, we see more prayers recorded than the other gospel writers. Seven prayers are recorded, more parables recorded, more songs. Luke, the artist, makes a point of recording the lyrics to six different songs in his gospel. And Luke is really interested in angels. 23 times we see stories that feature angels, and he tells about the activity and the ministry of angels to those who are destined for salvation. And so, uh, interesting thing that Luke puts his focuses on, uh, his major emphasis on the Holy Spirit. He's always talking about what the Holy Spirit is doing. And in Luke, he brings out much more than the other gospel writers, stories that deal with women, stories that deal with children, stories that deal with non-Jews, the Gentiles, and, and especially a lot of stories about poor and the downcast, and the downtrodden. Luke really pays attention to those details. And so he paints us this beautiful picture of Jesus Christ in his gospel. The major themes in this gospel will be forgiveness and salvation and joy. So you're in for a really good ride as we go on through this. Now, he's also a historian, and we're going to see this in just a minute. He sets in order this account of things. In fact, verses 1 through 4, his prologue, he writes it out in a very refined, classical, scholarly Greek composition. You know, all the highfalutin words and everything in verse 1 through 4. And he's basically setting forward, I, Dr. Luke, with my academic credentials and scholarly investigation, am telling you the story of Jesus. But then after verse 4, and through the balance of Luke and the book of Acts, he starts reading in the common street vernacular, the koine Greek of his day, that common ordinary people will understand. But he opens up with this little bit that I am legit, okay? I'm a doctor, I'm a historian, and I'm doing my homework. And you can uh, 
take it to the bank. It's an accurate and orderly account. It's a chronological account. We see that word orderly. And so whenever I was teaching in the Bible college, I'd always use Luke, the Gospel of Luke, as a backbone to build what we call a harmony of the Gospels. What do all the different Gospels say about this event and that event? If you were with us in the book of Matthew recently, you'd notice that Matthew really doesn't keep things in order. Sometimes he jumps over here, then he comes over here, then he goes back up here, and he goes back over there. And it's really hard to figure out the sequencing, the chronology. Well, Luke puts everything in an orderly account, so it's a wonderful way to go through the Gospel of Luke and then find all these other stories and kind of hang them on that as your framework, as your background, if you're trying to figure out the sequencing of events. And so it's very uh, historical, and you can take it to the bank. It was written probably about 59 to 63 A.D., and, and some of the hints that we can pick up out of this, especially like in the book of Acts, he talks about the Jews being expelled from Rome, and we know that happened about 58, 59, but we also know that it's written before Caesar Nero starts persecuting the Christians, right? And uh, Paul will be one of the uh, people who loses his life at the hands of Nero. So um, we get this little time stamp in there. The reason I bring that time stamp in is to kind of give you an idea of how close to the events Luke is writing, okay? So um, say 60 or 62 to round it up, you go back to 32 AD and about 30 years after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, Luke is writing these accounts, okay? And when you go back 30 years in time, it's kind of interesting. Do you remember what was on the headlines 30 to 40 years ago? Okay, here's a couple fun things. Carter was elected. After Carter was elected, Reagan was elected. Wozniak founded Apple Computers, okay? Um, Intel did the first processor, the first floppy disks were made. The first computer disk was made in 1985, right? Star Wars was a big movie, and in 1978, Mike Yost graduated from high school. <laughs> All kinds of stellar moments in history, right? But the point is, it wouldn't be difficult for you to go back and verify that these are truths. If I told you Reagan was elected after Carter, would I get anybody saying, that's not true? How do you, how do you prove that? It's like, <laughs> ask my grandpa. He was there. He voted for him, right? On all these different issues. So you can either verify these facts or you could easily refute them. You could easily say, that's not true. And yet there are no accounts refuting Luke's gospel, because it stands, because it's true, because it's based on eyewitnesses, people that were there. And so it's just good for you to understand the historical accuracy of what we're reading right here. We hang our faith on it, okay? And we want to know the truth, because that's the thing that sets us free. And uh, so that's kind of a little bit of that, the eyewitness accounts. It's interesting, some of the other apostles, they wrote of their eyewitness accounts as well. Peter writes in 2 Peter 1, beginning at verse 13, he says, Yes, I think it's right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease, okay? And so Peter says, I want to write down these things, things that we witness, things that we know. John the Apostle, he writes in 1 John in chapter 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. That's a name for Jesus Christ, the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. And so Luke is taking to task to put together an account so that we can understand all these events that went on um, 
I love what John says at the end of his gospel. In John chapter 20, at verse 30, he writes, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And that is the whole point. That is why Luke wrote this. That's why we're reading this. This is why God, through the Holy Spirit, inspired these peoples to make these declarations of truth. Because we want to live. We want life. We want heaven. We want Jesus Christ. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. In fact, the key verse, I believe, and the one that I've chosen as we go through the gospel of Luke, comes out of Luke 19, verse 10, and in that, Jesus says, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. That is the point. That is the point of Jesus. That's the point of this gospel. That's the point of why we gather together today, that we might find forgiveness, salvation, and joy. Okay? Saying all that, let's go ahead and jump in. Chapter 1, verse 1, I'll read the first four verses. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. This is his, what we call a prologue. I, I wouldn't doubt if it's written at the end, an epilogue, and tagged on as he's getting ready to send this letter, this document, this gospel off to this person, Theophilus, who he addresses this to. Now, the only thing we know historically, biblically about Theophilus is that he was excellent. <laughs> That's it. This is the whole enchilada right here. Ex Theophilus was once some excellent dude. It is fun to know that his name, literally, Theo is God, and Philo means love. The name Theophilus means lover of God. And so it's funny. If you know uh, Frankie and Jasmine, David, their, their oldest son, his name is David Theophilus. If you ever see him, right? Lover of God. And so Luke is writing this letter, and we don't know too much about this excellent dude, except that he is named lover of God. But what I love about it is it fits you and it fits me. This letter is addressed to us. If you are a lover of God, <laughs> great. You've come to the right place because this is for you, okay? So we see this letter and he opens it up. It's interesting to note that verses 1 through 4 in the Greek grammar is one sentence, okay? It's often found, especially in, in ancient documents, that they would write long sentences. Your probably English teacher would put, mark it all up with red pens. But here in the day, this is the way that they would write. And the reason I bring that out, more important than anything else, is if you know about grammar and sentence structure, all the information that's in a sentence is pertinent or relevant to other bits of information in that sentence. Once you hit the period and you go into a new sentence, now you're talking about something different and it doesn't necessarily relate directly, but if it's within the sentence, it's all one thought. And so here's the thought. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled amongst us. Luke, obviously, with Paul on the mission field, was there. He saw it, he did it, he got the t-shirt, he wrote the gospel, he gave it to us, right? And we read Peter, we read John. Many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative. A narrative is a story, okay? It's not a, some kind of theological discourse or doctrines and dogmas of Jesus Christ. If God had wanted us to know God through those systematic theologies he would have written us a th systematic theology. Now, if you go to seminary, you will, Joy, be exposed to, Joy's leaving for uh, Calvary Bible Institute in a couple weeks. <laughs> Yay, right? 
you're going to hear the doctrines, you're going to hear the systematic theologies, and all that's good. I studied it. Anybody that's really a scholar probably will. You want to know the, the theology of soteriology? Anybody want to know that one? That's salvation. You want to know about salvation? Right, but I save the $4 words. I don't need them, right? But God didn't write to us in a systematic theology. He wrote to us in stories. He wrote to us in poetry. He wrote to us in songs. He wrote to us in proverbs and wisdom. He wrote to us in a way that he knew he created us and he knew we would understand him. We would get it. The least common denominator, everybody loves a story. And so Luke says, I, put, I took to task to set in order a narrative. Now, I mentioned just a minute ago, Matthew has a great story too. But Matthew's all over the map, and you can't follow the sequencing. But here Luke, he took to task to set in order a narrative of those things which have been, past tense, fulfilled among us. Stuff I've seen, stuff I know, stuff I investigated. It's provable, okay? Things, I'm writing about reality here. I'm re writing about real life, okay? And see, so he goes on, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. So he is doing what they did. Luke is doing what Paul did. Luke is doing what John did and uh, all the apostles. He's taking those experiences, things that they have actually tasted, touched, smelled, seen, things they know for a fact, and write them down. It's interesting. It says those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. That word eyewitness is autopsis, and it's the word from which we get an autopsy, okay? They really dug into the details. They were eyewitnesses. They did autopsy on these things. They investigated them deeply. It says eyewitnesses and ministers, that they not only saw it and just unraveled it and understood it, they were ministers. That means that they did it. They, they took what they saw and they ran with it and they saw, they experienced the truth of it. That's such an important point for all of us as Christians to understand. You can hear the gospel till the hens come home, or the cows come home, whoever comes home. But what are you going to do with it? You need to be more than just hearers of the word. You need to be doers of the word. And that's what Luke is saying. They were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, and they delivered them to us. And he says, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding or, or literally accurately followed. And then, and then, so he's got these eyewitnesses, right? This is within 30 years of the life of Jesus Christ. He's touring around with Paul. They're going into all the known world, Asia Minor and Israel and all of that. And no doubt he's sitting down with all these people and interviewing them. And tell me about this. And tell me about that. And he's writing these things down. And he's compiling all of these things so he can make this. Having a perfect understanding, having accurately followed all of the things from the very first to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. And just a side note on this, from the very first, it's rather interesting, that word literally, that phrase in Greek, um, deals with from above. It's the word anothen. And it, it literally says, having had these things from above, that God was the one that revealed it to him. In uh, Ephesians, in chapter 1, verse 6, it's, it, it uses that same word, Anoth, and he says one of the blessings that we have as children of God uh, in this list of blessings in 1 6 says, You have you are accepted in the beloved. You are anothen in the beloved. It's the same word that he uses or John uses in his gospel in chapter 3 when Nicodemus comes to him, and Jesus says to Nicodemus, You must be born anothen. You must be born from above. You must be born from the first. You must be born of God. We call it born again, right? That new birth. And so Luke is helping us understand what he is writing here 
isn't his. It didn't originate with him. It didn't even originate with the people who he's reporting it. They were all pointing to Jesus. This is a big 24 chapters of let me tell you about my Jesus, okay? That's what this is all going to be about. To write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty or safety is a way you can translate that. Everything you're learning, you can bank on it. You can bet your life on it. You will be safe if you take these words and apply them to your life. You'll know the safety, the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Again, another Greek word. I don't necessarily like to get in a lot of Greek words, but this is high Greek. This is sophisticated, scholarly, and Luke chose his words perfectly, and that word instructed is the word we get catechism from. Some of you may have grown up in different branches of the Christian church where you would be, you would go to catechism, a special training, and you go through a year of it, and when you passed it, then you'd be prepared for your baptism or commun first communion and those kinds of things. But that's what this means is, is a focused, purposeful study, instruction, a catechism, that you'll know that it's safe, that when you follow these words, you're going to get to heaven. It, you, you, it's going to bear out for you. Verse 5, now we start talking street. Now we start talking the Koine Greek. There was in the days of Herod, that's Herod the Great. He was a little guy, but he had great building projects and a great ego. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abiha. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So now we start off in this gospel, this good news, the glad tidings of Jesus Christ, talking about this guy who is a priest and his wife, okay, who's also of the tribe of Aaron. So they're both from that high priestly line, and uh, they're, they're, they're righteous people here. She was of the daughters of Aaron. It's interesting, Zachariah's name means Yahweh remembers, and Elizabeth's name means the oath of God, and together the two become one flesh, and their name is Yahweh remembers the oath of God. And this is a story about God remembering. I made a promise, watch what I'm about to do, okay? And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord and blameless. And I love this. They're, they're described as this classic couple, husband and wife. They're uh, righteous. They do everything according to the way that they have been taught and instructed according to the word of God and blameless. That there's nothing that you could hold against them. If, if they've made a mistake, they've confessed it, and, and nothing sticks. They're walking clean and holy and upright before the Lord. And I think it's amazing that the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to say this about them. You know, a lot of times we think of ourselves, and we, you know, I don't know what you would describe yourself as, but let me ask you, in your list of ways that you talk about yourself, would you say that you're righteous and blameless? But God does. Because God sees the end from the beginning. He knows who you are from the day he formed you in his mother's womb. And he knows how it's all going to turn out for you. And so he, we look through the scriptures and we see that they were righteous and blameless people walking in the ordinances of God. little side note on this. Um, yes, Zacharias, the priest, had a wife priests marry, okay? Even if you go into the book of Leviticus in 21 in verses 13 through 15, it talks about who priests should and should not marry in order not to put, bring a black mark upon the ministry. But yes, priests were married, and Elizabeth was her name, and they lived in the Judean hillside um, out uh, beyond um, well, technically Jerusalem and, and Nazareth, as we're going to see. Verse 7, but they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were well advanced in years. Now, in the Jewish culture, in the days that they were living, for a woman not to have a child was a, a very uh, shameful thing and a very hurtful thing. And, you know, the, the very purpose for God making them, male and female, he made them, 
was that they would have offspring, that they would be fruitful, and they would be multiplied. And so for a woman not to have a child in their culture would be something that would feel very, very, very ashamed about, right? And yes, in their culture, they were very clear. They knew what a boy was and they knew what a girl was. They didn't need a Supreme Court justice to figure it out, okay? So, but she, she's got this burden, uh, this deep burden, okay? And we're, as we're going to see, they're well advanced in years. So this is not a new thing. They have this thing. And, and as I say this, I want to be careful as we go through much of what we talk about. Every one of these issues are real issues that real people live with. Luke, the physician, knows this stuff. We deal with this garbage in our life, okay? And, 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 and some of it we've caused ourselves. Some of it's just the work of the enemy in, in our lives. But if you are somebody who wants to have a child and you can't, that's a deep, deep heartache, okay? And that's part of what we have to see. When we look at this story, we're talking about people that were hurting, deeply hurting, and, and, and even potentially questioning, Lord, why, why are you allowing this in my life? I don't understand. I'm doing everything you've asked me to. <laughs> Blameless, upright, walking in your ordinances. Why is it that I can't bear children? As we're going to see, I'll just give you a little spoiler warning. This could be even known as a blessed barrenness. And naturally, Barrenness is not what we consider a blessing, and yet God has a plan. And often in our life, some of the most blessed things that we experience come out of tragedy or trials. In fact, it's rather interesting in the Old Testament, when you look up the word blessing and you look up the word cursing, it's actually the same word. You have to look at the context to decide which one it is. Is God blessing you or cursing you? And often we get a misinterpretation of the blessings that are in our life because we're looking through it from our point of view. If only we could turn around and see what God was doing in our life. We could see the end from the beginning. And we can because the Bible teaches us. I have a plan for you to give you a hope, to give you a future, to never forsake you, to be with you all the days of your life. You are my poetry. You're my workmanship. I created you specifically and individually for the things that I want you to do. I've got a plan. And we look at our life and we're going, I don't see it. And you can see how this could be hard for them, okay? We just finished singing, Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. Luke, our physician, he's going to help us with this, okay? Let's go forward. So it was, or I'm sorry, but they had no children because Liz was barren and they were both well advanced in years. So it was while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord and the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense, okay? So this is a, this is a pretty cool thing, okay? He's a priest. Now, we, we just finished the book of Genesis, right? And, and we got a little bit of an idea of how old school things were. But according to the Jews, their Jewish religious system, there were priests and the priest would go to the temple and they would do different things like offering sacrifices and prayers and, and things like this. Well, he was uh, a priest. He was a son of Aaron. You had to be a descendant from Aaron, Moses' brother, to be a priest. But by the time it had gone from Moses and Aaron down through all these children and all these families multiplying, there was somewhere between 20 and 22,000 priests, <laughs> descendants of Aaron in the nation of Israel, okay? And so, obviously, they can't all show up at the temple on the same day. If you go back into the book of Chronicles, King David had ordered or organized the priesthood um, as they would go and they would serve um, in different um, courses, they would call them. And so, they would serve according to whatever family they belonged for two weeks, 
and that was your turn to leave whatever town you lived in, go up to Jerusalem, go to the, the temple and serve in the temple two weeks out of the year according to your family. This family was the family of Abiha, and Zechariah was a descendant of this priest Abiha, so it was his two-week course to be there at the temple, okay? So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Wow. Hard to get a handle on what a great honor this was. Out of 20,000 priests, you may never in your whole life go into the temple. You would serve outside with the offerings and all these different things, but he got the golden ticket. He got to go in to the holy place inside where there was the menorah, there was the candlestick that um, was filled with that oil. It was a picture of the light of the world, Jesus Christ. There was a table of showbread where they would see how God reminded was always providing for them, you know, that Jesus is that bread of life. And then right there in the middle of the room, right before this huge woven veil, 80 feet tall, embroidered with cherubim and all on side. It was absolutely splendid inside, and almost nobody ever got to go inside. Zechariah would be able to approach what is known as the altar of incense, and it was a golden cask, a box, that they would bring in the coals and the incense, and they would light them together, and it says that the incense going to heaven was like it symbolized prayers going up to God. And this was Zachariah's day in his lifetime. He had waited forever to be able to do this, and he's doing this. So they walk inside, and usually the way this would work, it'd be three priests, and one priest got the honor of bringing the box with the, the coals, the embers. Another priest on the other side of Zacharias would have the honor of carrying in the incense, and they would all three walk in, they would approach the altar, then those two priests would set down the coals and the incense and leave, and Zachariah would be inside alone with God, and he would put the coals onto the altar. He's never done this before. Nobody, you know, you hear stories of it, but nobody's seen it done because it's done inside. You can't see it, right? And so here he is, and he's standing in front of this. You can imagine the, the excitement, and he puts the coals in. He takes the incense, and he pours the incense in, and all of a sudden, the whole, whole place starts filling with smoke. It would have just been amazing, right? And uh, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. So this would be about 3 p.m. in the afternoon. This is when they would go through this ritual. And there's always people gathered at the temple. And they're all waiting for him to go inside and do this and then come out. And when he came out, the, the, they would pre, uh, pronounce the high priestly prayer or the benediction. He, after the priest had gone in and offered up prayers to God, he had prayed for the nation of Israel, then he'd walk out and all the people would be waiting and he would lift up his hand and he would say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious up to, to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And so everybody's outside waiting for him to come outside, it says. Then Verse 11, the angel of the Lord appeared to him, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Little teeny detail, but I just want to bring it to your attention. What side of the altar was the angel on? How do you know that? Because Luke recorded it. These are the kind of details that help us see that this isn't just some kind of fairy tale, okay? This is what police are looking for when they're investigating a situation. Give me these odd little tidbits of detail that we can run down, and you start seeing, wow, these are autopsy, autopsis. These are eyewitness accounts, people that were there. Yeah, I was there, and I put the hand, it was smoking, and, it was just, and I looked, and boom! There's this angel right there on the right side of the altar, right? You can imagine as Zacharias is recounting this story and Luke's writing all these things down. The angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. I imagine, right? Who are you? What are you doing in here? I didn't think anybody else came in here. And no doubt, you know, an angel. You know, what do angels look like? I don't know. Was it some like cute little chubby 
baby with wings and diapers and an arrow. That's not how they're described in the Bible. Every time we see a description of angels in the Bible, they are terrifying. They are huge, and they are warriors, and they are fierce, and there's this angel standing right there. And you can imagine what is happening in his mind. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name Johanan. John. Johanan means Yahweh is gracious. I'm about to give you a gift. That's what you're going to name him. Gift from God. Johanan, John, okay? And it's interesting. And, and so he says, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. You're thinking prayer. There's a couple ways you can interpret this. He's in there, right? What's my job? My job is to take the coals, put them on, take the incense, put it on. And while that all goes up, I pray for Israel. And maybe just sneak a little one in for me and Elizabeth. <laughs> but remember, they're well advanced in years. The days of having babies sailed a long time ago. And I'm almost guessing in his heart, he's thinking prayers. Oh, I remember when we were a young couple. And we prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed, and we didn't just, we prayed for years. We prayed for decades. But finally the day came, we looked at each other and said, ain't going to happen. Probably stopped praying. Probably forgot that prayer. I'll bet you if you ask the Holy Spirit right now, he could remind you of a prayer that you've been forgetting. A prayer that meant the world to you once upon a time. You haven't seen the answer yet, but it just took so long, you kind of just haven't thought about it. Maybe it's time to dust that prayer off. Pray it again, because God has heard your prayer. The angel says, <laughs> God has heard. The Lord, um, the angel said to him, don't be afraid, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name John, verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Yeah, uh, having a baby, one of the most exciting, beautiful times, you know, in, in anybody's life. This is like one of the biggies, right? And you can imagine the joy. Finally, answer to prayer. Verse 15, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will also go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. <sighs> wow. You get all that? Are you absorbing all this? I'm like, I'm still trying to figure out who you are. What are you doing in here? Right? And I'm afraid and I'm troubled and I'm really having a hard time processing right now. And all this just pours upon him. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. Isn't that the prayer we have for all of our children? Oh, Lord, just help them walk with you just all the days of their life. Smile on them, Lord. Be gracious unto them. He will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. The wine or strong drink is a reference to what we call the Nazarite vow. As we go back into the scriptures, there is a, a vow that one would set themselves apart unto the Lord. And three things came with the Nazarite vow. And a person go into the temple and say, I'm going to set myself, I'm going to consecrate, dedicate myself for a certain amount of time. And when you go in, you would promise not to touch any hard drink. You would promise not to touch anything dead. And you would cut your hair. And then you would promise not to cut your hair again until you completed your vow. And it wasn't uncommon. Some of these vows would last uh, a year or I mean a couple months, two, three months. But in some cases, they would go on for a long time. In the case of this child, he would be a Nazarite for life, dedicated to God, and God would show himself strong through him. Samson is an example of a person who had taken the Nazarite vow and then blew it, but at the end, God brought him back. And we see this done throughout the scriptures, but here the angel tells him, your son, 
He's going to be set apart for God. He's going to be great in his eyes. Even it says, um, from the day of his mother's womb, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. I just love that. God has a plan for us. We read in the book of Jeremiah, God speaking to the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 1.5, God says to him, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. God knew before you were even conceived who you would be. That speaks of all of us. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. That means to set apart. I have a special mission, a plan for your life. I ordained you, he says to Jeremiah, a prophet to the nations. And so it was God's plan all along for Jeremiah to be a prophet. In Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16, we read, and this is uh, David speaking now. He says, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. What marvelous are your works that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance yet being unformed. And in your book, they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. Every life is precious. Every life comes from God. Every one of us, God has a plan and a purpose for our life. And he declares this to Zechariah, your son, he's going to be special. He's, he's going to be a Nazarite. He's going to be great in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, the Holy Spirit is going to fill him even within his mother's womb. God can do these things, and he does. And it's, again, a mention of the Holy Spirit, a mention of angels. Luke is big on helping us see this world that we can't see. The great physician, the guy who deals with life and death and sickness and healing, and he knows there is more to this life than meets the eye. I love it when we go, especially, and I'm, I'm going to brag on St. Luke's for a minute, but when we go on visitations there, and I'm talking to the interns and the orderlies and the people, especially in ICU, and you go in and you pray with people, many of them who have heard really tragic news, it's going to be terminal or something like that. And I can't tell you how many times a nurse or an orderly would come up to me and say, we see God do miracles here all the time. I know what the doctors say, but don't stop praying, because I can tell you it happens all the time the time. Doctors know this probably better than almost anybody because they deal with it on a regular basis. And this is what Luke is trying to help us see. Okay. Um, it says in verse 16, and he will turn many of the children of Israel and to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Very, very interesting in this. This is a quote out of Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. In your Bible, Malachi verses, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 are the last two verses of the Old Testament. Then we talk about a period of time, almost 400 years, in which there were no prophets and no word of God came to the Israelite people until right here. Until this moment in the temple at the incense when Gabriel stands up to this priest and says, God speaks and he's got a plan and he's on the move and he is going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make way uh, a people prepared for him. I love what it says and I'm going to read Malachi 4, 5, and 6. He says, behold, this is the Old Testament. Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the coming and great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Last word of your Old Testament, curse. And yet, God has a plan, and the plan happens here and now. God says, you're going to have a boy. I heard your prayer. He's going to be awesome. He's going to be John, Johanan, the gift of God, and he's going to be a baptizer. That's why we call him John the Baptist. Verse 18, And Zechariah said to the angel, 
How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. <laughs> okay, how am I going to know this? Okay, that, that probably makes sense. You know, well, you know you'll know this. Like there's going to be a baby screaming and crying and you're going to see it. But, but right now I'm in the temple. I'm going to go outside. I'm going to go tell my wife, huh, honey, you know, she's going to say, how, how is it going? How, how, how did it go up in Jerusalem when you were there? Anything happen at work? Uh, yeah, honey, uh, we're going to have a baby. <laughs> and you can imagine how this is all, how am I going to know this? How am I going to explain it to my wife, okay? How, how am I going to explain it to the people? I don't, I don't understand what this is going on. And, and you've got to love this. And I can imagine poor Zacharias for 2,000 years now, up in heaven, waiting for the rest of us to catch up. He and Elizabeth probably have this conversation over and over and over again. You told them you're an old man, and you said, I'm advanced in years and well-stricken. Really? Throw me under the bus? It's written in the Bible. Every Christian that's come down the pipe since that, when we get to heaven, we're going, where's that old lady, Elizabeth, right? Really? You had to do that, me, that to me, Zacharias? That word, well-stricken, it literally is bent over, but you're just so old with age. You're, you're, you're in that stage of life where you can't even stand up straight. Um, and so, verse 19, in answer to the question, and the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring, these, bring you these glad tidings. I've already expressed glad tidings. The, the gospel I'm bringing you the gospel. This is one way you're going to know. How am I going to know these things are true? Well, for starters, I'm Gabriel, okay? Uh, and, and that name Gabriel means God is my strength. I come in the authority and the power and the name of God. And I am telling you, Zechariah, standing there next to the altar of incense and prayer, that you're going to have a kid. Just me telling you that should be enough, right? How many times, time, Zechariah, has an angel visited you and told you information? Why are, you, why are you asking me that? Well, I don't think it's because he was doubting it, but he's like, I can't figure it out. I can't unravel this with my mind. He says to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. That's where this is coming from, if you want to know the source. And was sent to speak to you and bring you this gospel, this good news, these glad tidings. You're going to see the angels sing that in another couple chapters, right? When Jesus is born and the shepherds are out there in the fields watching their flocks by night and they say, we bring you glad tidings, the good news. We bring you the gospel. He's born this day in the city of David, Jesus Christ, the Lord. So this is angel. He's bringing this herald, this, this, this wonderful, wonderful story um, these glad tidings, verse 20, but behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. Oh, bummer. <laughs> Have you ever got good news? Really good news? Some of the most amazing news you have ever heard. You are so excited. Oh, I can't wait to tell everybody. Can you imagine? That's how you're going to know. <laughs> you doubted me. It says because, right? Just you can see how the story might have been different. But because he doubted him... He says, you will be mute and not able to speak, dumb. And if we go into verse 62, it talks about all the people were trying to give sign language to Zechariah, which uh, might mean he was deaf also, okay? But we do see here at least that he was mute, that he, he lost his ability to speak. That's one of the ways that you'll know, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. Godspeed. Okay, right at the speed of God. Not too soon, not too late, right on time. Verse 21, and the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. Yeah, what's he doing in there, right? By, by the way, how about worship team, you come on up. We're about to finish here. 
wondered that he lingered so long in the temple. What's going on in there? Verse 22, but when he came out, he could not speak to them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless, okay? Basically, this idea that he, he beckoned to them, he's using sign language, he's playing charades, right? How, how would that charade go? Angel, okay, <laughs> except I can't say that, right? And, and, and here he is on the steps of the temple, and everybody's waiting for him to come out. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. And he's like, <laughs> you, that's in there. I'm not even making it up. It's right there, okay? <laughs> he's beckoning to them, and he remains speechless. So it was as soon as the days of his service were completed. So remember, two weeks I don't know if he went in on the first day of his course or the last day, but there was a couple days. As soon as the days of his service were completed, that he departed to his own house, right? So, honey, how'd it go at the temple? And you just imagine. Now, after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. So Elizabeth receives that good news. They conceive a child that would have been by the natural course of life, right? The, the message, the announcement, it's miraculous that they conceived. Um, but here she is with child. It says she hid herself for five months. And uh, as you know, that's the part of the pregnancy when you really don't show. Okay? So it's not like she's afraid. She goes out in the street and they're like, oh, what happened to you? You know? They can't really tell, especially with long flowing robes and all that kind of stuff. But I think what she did was she just kind of just went away to be with the Lord and, and, and looked for confirmation of this. Is this really happening to me, right? It would be months before she could really know, you know, maybe. I don't know. There's signs that I might be pregnant, but we'll see. But when you start getting that baby bump and it starts growing, you're like, yep, something's happening here, right? And so she kind of just took that time that, that she hit pause with the Lord. And she says, okay, Lord, I'll be right here with you. We'll, 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 we'll see how this, this plays out. And we will see how that plays out next time we get together. But here she does say in, in her confession, the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. God heard my prayer. Can't believe it. What a blessed barrenness. You know, when it's, it's that idea of um, that delayed gratification. When you, when, you, when you really, really, really have to wait for the good stuff. And, you know, a lot of us miss a lot of the blessings. We miss a lot of the curses because we don't. It's not instant. It's not microwave. And I prayed that prayer and nothing happened. I'm moving on. It's like, wait a minute. You prayed that prayer. If you prayed in sincerity, I guarantee you God heard it. God hears everything. You don't think you're pulling anything over his eyes. He heard it. And he answers. And, and the answer may be yes. It may be no. It may be wait. But know that he heard it. And live like he heard it. And here she does. She believes. And he says, he looked on me, he took away my reproach. I pray for all of us as we walk on through the book of Luke, as we gather together over the next weeks or months, hours or minutes until he comes, that we would live in faith, that we would live in hope, hope, a certainty of things that are to happen. A lot of times we think hope and wishes, we get them mixed up. Oh, I wish I could get a pony for Christmas. That's just wishing. Hoping is based on the facts. Hoping is based on the reality. Hoping is based on an orderly account witnessed and lived out and shared now with us. Jesus loves us. Jesus has a plan for us. Jesus has a plan for you this afternoon wonder what it's going to be. It'll be kind of fun. Next week, we can talk about that. Father God, we want to thank you for this day that you've given us to gather uh, as your children, 
come together in this family and, and just love on each other, hug on each other, lift up our cares, our burdens, our hopes, and our joys. Encourage one another and, 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 and just, Lord, um, I pray as a family, Lord, that you would use our love one to another as a witness to the world that you do live amongst us, that the things that you say are true, we can take them to the bank, we can bet our life on them, that we are now children of God. We are heaven-bound. We've already entered. We've crossed the threshold into eternity. And death is just a doorway for us to even better things. Help us live according to your promises, according to your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about the Springs Calvary Chapel, please visit our website at www.thespringscalvarychapel.org. Join us in person at the Springs in Hebron, Idaho, or here on the podcast as we worship together in spirit and in truth.